Well, good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here this morning. If we've not met, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the pastors with Redeemer Church. I hope you enjoyed our anniversary celebrations last week. The testimonies, the teaching from Pastor Alvin during First Sunday Prayer was such a great start to the day. I enjoyed our worship gathering. I know there was a lot of standing up and sitting. We're not going to do any of that today. I'm glad you guys redeemed yourselves on the third quiz question. Remember, almost everybody missed the second question of the the book of the Bible. I had not preached yet, but you redeemed yourself on the third, all the above. You got that right. We studied the Bible. We took communion together. We sang and we sang more and more and more, and it was just such a beautiful time. A great turnout at the anniversary picnic. We showed up about halfway through and stayed for a couple hours, and yet there were people that still stayed even longer. I hope that time of fellowship was encouraging uh, to you. Next weekend, we're going to gather again. So at 4 p.m., our members will gather, those who are already uh, brought into membership of the church. We're going to meet at 4 p.m., at the Dubai Evangelical Church Center. And then at 6 p.m., everyone is invited. We're going to have our next baptism service. And so we have several people that will be baptized, many new believers and others who are publicly professing their faith through baptism uh, next Saturday. So note that day, next Saturday, 4 p.m. members meeting, 6 p.m. baptisms. I hope you can attend. Well, we want to approach God's Word, and I want to pray for the preaching, but I think it would be fitting to pray for those uh, suffering the effects of the earthquake and not far from here, especially those in Turkey and in Syria. And so let me lead us in prayer before we look at Romans. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you praying for peace and for provision from those hurting from the earthquake. Father, we pray for Hate Turkey, for the Mesa Killer Church whose building has been destroyed. Other church buildings have been destroyed. Homes have been destroyed. We pray that you would hold your people together by your Spirit. Father, we thank you for those from Kankaya Baptist Church and Umut Church who've driven down from Ankara to provide supplies. We thank you for other Christians and churches who have, who have chipped in to, to help. Lord, we mourn the passing of so many, we mourn the passing away of Iskenderun church leaders, Pastor Hakan, his wife, Pola. Oh Lord, comfort that congregation, comfort other congregations who've lost leaders and members, family members. Oh Father, would the chief shepherd lead them and all churches? Lord, we don't know why. We know you'll get glory, and we pray that Christ would be glorified in this tragedy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Father, we understand it's a privilege to sit here in peace today. It's a privilege to to gather it all today. Help us to learn. Help us to reflect. Help us to apply Romans in our own lives. May we not be merely hearers of the word but doers of the word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, do you like to run? Do you like to run 
for fun. Now, for some of us, running is an excruciating exercise. It's boring. Maybe for some of you, your health conditions prohibit you from running. Why would we do it anyway? Run for fun? Well, I don't especially like running. I think um, it's not the most fun thing I could do. I don't despise it, though. I somewhat enjoy running when I'm outside, when I'm in a new place, when I feel the fresh air, when I'm able to explore, because you can run faster than you can walk. And so I enjoy running, or, or maybe I should say jogging slowly in a new place as I get to explore and observe the people and, and observe the place. At the end of last year, uh, I, I ran in a, in a race along with 192,000 other people. I took part in the Dubai run, the largest fun run in the world. Now, I actually went to run, but I can tell that most people had fun not running. I believe the count may have been about 191,000 people who only signed up in order to take selfies of themselves on Sheikh Zayed Road. They weren't there to run at all. Well, one of my other most memorable runs took place in Athens, Greece. We were visiting friends. They were living up on a high hill that overlooked the city. And I thought it would be a good idea if just before dinner, I went on a run. And for the first half of the run, it was, it was run wonderful. The wind was, in, was on my back and I was taking a, a nice jog and looking at the city and praying and just enjoying what I took in until I realized I'd ran so far away that I had no idea where I was. I was lost. I had no idea how to get back. In fact, I was so late by the time I got back, I missed dinner. I was cold as an icicle. It was a terrible time. But here's what I really don't like. I really don't like running on a treadmill. I don't like treadmills. I understand in hot climates like Dubai, many of us resort to treadmills or indoor exercise equipment to stay fit. But I find treadmills terribly boring, terribly monotonous. There's nothing to see. You're indoors. No fun, at least for me. I think religion is a bit like this. For some, the practice of religion is like running on a treadmill. Dull, boring, tiresome, unfulfilling. You start running faster and faster. You turn up that button of good works and rituals. The speed increases. The incline goes higher and higher and higher. You do more and more hoping to please God. You hope you're doing enough. Well, but here's the issue with this treadmill type of religion. There's a huge canyon between us and God. We're on one side, he's on the other side. It's an enormous gulf, an enormous valley, far, far away. You could say infinitely far from one another. We're on one side, God is there on the other. And it's like having a treadmill on your side of the canyon. And you're running on the treadmill. You're running on it because evil is lurking behind you. You're, you're running on the treadmill because you're, you're going after God's help. Relief from the world, relief from the flesh, relief from the devil. Death is imminent and so you run and you keep running. But here's the problem. The problem is rather obvious, is, isn't it? No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you run... 
on that treadmill, no matter how fast you run, you can't get across the canyon. In fact, you're not making up any ground at all. With so much distance between us as sinners and between a holy God, a holy God as the judge of the secrets, it's like trying to cross that canyon while running on a treadmill on one side. We're powerless to make that crossing. Well, in this section of Romans, today's passage and next week's passage, the Apostle Paul is going to show us that even those who knew most about God, even those who had great access to God, even they could not save themselves. Even for them, they were running on a treadmill to nowhere. Well, I have two points today. We'll be looking at those verses just read, verses 17 through 29, and we'll look at it in two sections, two points. Number one, not a performance, but we're saved not by a performance, but a clean heart. And number two, it's not about a sign, not a sign, but a clean heart. Not a performance, not a sign, but a clean heart. So first, let's look at not a performance, but a clean heart. We'll see that from verses 17 through 24. Now, if it wasn't clear before, now it is. Verse 17, the Apostle Paul says very directly to us that he's addressing the Jews. He starts out with several statements about Jewish privilege with a number of if clauses. Several ways the Jews had a self-confidence about themselves. He, he, he says in verse 17, just the very fact that they're called Jews was, was one of these. This, this was a person descended from Judah. Though after the exile, all the Israelites came to be called Jews. The word means Yahweh be praised. Well, second, another, another self-confidence they had was they had a possession of the law. Second part of verse 17, God chose the Israelites to have the law and to share the law, to share God's word with the rest of the world. It was a unique relationship with God. Third, they boast in God claiming a superior standing. Fourth, now in verse 18, they had a knowledge of God's will. The instruction they received would help them know God's plan. Fifth, they discerned things which were essential, approved what was superior. Sixth, they were instructed by the law. They, they preserved it. They knew it. They mastered it. Seventh and eighth, a guide for the blind and an instructor for the foolish. They could help others. They had the privilege of, of sharing the word with the world. But here's how these privileges were twisted. These blessings gave birth to pride. They were proud to be a Jew. They were wearing it publicly as a badge of honor. They relied on the law, but they had took a pride in it, in knowing it so well, in keeping it. Or so they thought. They bragged about their relationship with God. They looked down upon others. They looked down upon the Gentiles, even at times calling the Gentiles dogs. Well, Paul, knowing their hearts, moves to cross-examine the self-righteous with a series of questions. He turns the tables on the Jews. You know this law, but do you live up to it? You boast in the law, how do you measure up with its privileges? 
Five questions. Verses 21 down through 23, you teach others. Well, do you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing, but do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, well, how about you? Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols? Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law? Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Now, most of these questions are easily understood. You could take them at face value. You teach? Well, are, are you listening to your own teaching? You steal? You teach about stealing? Do you steal yourself? You preach against adultery? Well, how's your life? How's your purity? Are you committing the same sins? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, this one is a bit more difficult to understand. Paul is most likely thinking of pagan temples. Jews would have been disgusted by the idols. They were horrendous. You wouldn't approach a pagan temple if you were a Jew, except for the purpose of of robbery. That would be the clear interpretation that the Jews robbed these temples, but that wouldn't seem to make much sense that they would do that. Scholar Doug Moo says there's some evidence that Jews at this time were relaxing Old Testament laws against the using of precious metals melted down from the idols. Paul might be citing that practice as evidence that their horror of idolatry is insincere. Other interpreters think Paul may be referring to the Jerusalem temple and their robbery was holding back taxes imposed on them for its upkeep. The first interpretation seems best as Moose says the action of robbing temples must be the opposite of the Jews' abhorrence of idols. Well, either way, there, there was a hypocrisy among the Jews, and we see that in each of the five questions there. They were teaching one thing, and they were practicing another thing. And even if somehow you could answer positively these First five answers. The last statement in verse 24 would condemn you. It's written down that God's name is actually blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Jews' reputation because of their actions, because their actions were not congruent with their teachings. God's name was actually blasphemed. These are strong words. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 52. Tom Schreiner notes that in that context, the blaspheming of God's name in Isaiah comes about because of pagan oppression of Israel. Paul creates an ironic twist by attributing this blasphemy to Israel's sinfulness in the midst of pagans. The Jews didn't practice what they preached. It was an outward religion incongruent with their hearts. Inconsistent. Their words, inconsistent with their works. The problem is they had an outward form. Many ways they looked good, but it was an empty shell. Nothing inside. It's a continuation of what we saw last week with hypocrisy. Paul's not saying there was a problem with being a Jew. The problem was they relied on their performance. 
It's not being a Jew. It's not doing good things. It's the reliance on your good things or your good works or your ethnicity. The law wasn't bad. It was a good thing. The law was a gift. The law has, has many good things about it. One was that it showed you your sin. Another was that it was a guide to life. It gave instruction. The Ten Commandments, the laws, they, they were good. But using them and relying on them to be saved was a death sentence. When God gave these laws, it wasn't to an unsaved people. Have you thought about that? I love how the youth are going through the book of Exodus. So you'll get to this in a, in a bit, youth. But in Exodus chapter 20, the law is, is given. It was given to a people who had already come to Yahweh by faith. This lineage of faith tracing itself all the way back to Genesis. The patriarchs were saved by faith. And in Exodus, the Red Sea crossing was a salvation by faith. Salvation is always by grace through faith plus nothing. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the glory of God alone. Always, all throughout the scriptures, the Jews misunderstood and misused this grand gift of the law. Instead of praising the Lord and thanking him for the law, they boasted in their perceived keeping of the law. Jesus later speaks of them like whitewashed tombs, tombs with dead bones, uh, with a decaying body inside, but painted white. It looks good on the outside. It looks clean on the outside. The paint is fresh on the outside, but lurking inside is a dead body. No matter how many times you paint the tomb, you can't change what's inside the tomb. Now, back in our first year in Dubai, we lived in just a massive apartment complex behind Ibn Battuta Mall. Two, three hundred buildings. We were building 91, and we moved in, but it was not without its problems. The ceilings kept leaking. The toilet kept flooding. For three months, there was concrete stuck in our pipes, and so we couldn't do the wash. Problem after problem after problem, and nothing was done. Nothing would be done for us until, until one day, water damage appeared in the front of the building. And immediately, a maintenance crew was sent out to our building to do what? Well, to, to repaint the building. To, to cover up the water damage on the building. They would start on one side of the building and then paint all the way to the other side of the building. But what inevitably happened by the time they finished the other side of the building? Well, the water damage on the other side came up again. It's because they didn't address the real problem. Ultimately, that paint couldn't fix what was wrong on the inside. The point, you have to get to the heart of the problem in order to fix the problem. Same with our lives. The heart of your problem is a problem with your heart. Let me say that again. The heart of your problem, the heart of our, our problem is the problem with our hearts. Friend, what's the state of your heart? 
You might look good here on Sunday morning, but what happened on Saturday night? You might think right thoughts as you sing worship songs. Grace, grace, God's grace. But what did you think about last week? Your spare moments. You smile at community group, but what did you say to that person at work earlier in the day? The boss walks by, you're at work, you're typing furiously on the computer. But are there there other times when you steal time for personal purposes? Is there any bitterness? Is there any covetousness in your heart? Any anger, any unrighteous anger toward a family member, a friend, someone in this church? Your smile's in front of them, but... What's going on on the inside betrays your outward appearance. In what ways are you like my old apartment building? Working on your external reputation. Putting on the good paint. On the external, looking a certain way. Working on your external reputation when what you really need is an internal renovation. How are you like the Jews? They knew the law left and right. They could recite Torah. They knew the law. It's interesting how someone can know so much about God's word and yet live so little of it out. It's scary. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones applies this to professing Christians when he writes, as you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you, otherwise it can be very dangerous. There's a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. And that last part is is key. Practice what you preach. Practice what you teach. Practice what you What you say, practice what you read. Lloyd-Jones is saying, if you know the Bible, but you don't live out its truths, it's actually dangerous. That's what Paul is saying when the Jews were blaspheming God among the Gentiles. It's because they knew the truth. They knew the law. They could recite Torah. They could recite the Bible line after line after line. They had studied it from little children on up to adults they knew it but then their actions betrayed it it was dangerous it's dangerous to know the truth it's dangerous to know your bible it's dangerous for you to sit here at our gatherings with redeemer church to hear god's word preached but then to go out and live something else out that's a danger you may think you've earned god's favor You may also at the same time be making a mockery of the Christian faith to others, just as the Jews had blasphemed God's name by their hypocrisy. You say one thing, others see something else. Church, let's be careful. We could easily become prideful at Redeemer Church. Expository preaching here on Sundays. We study the Bible in our community groups. We have a number of equipping classes 
Exodus and our youth groups, our tweens doing the New City Catechism. We have golf theological seminary classes going on all the time. All these ways to study God's Word, all these ways to learn and to learn and to learn. All good things, by the way. In fact, keep studying, keep learning, keep reading, keep going to class, keep doing these things. Let's never stop doing these things. But let's not be Pharisees and let's not be hypocrites. Those hypocrites who look like they kept the law all the while being whitewashed tombs, apartment buildings with bad plumbing. No, we must apply the truths of Scripture to ourselves. We must be open about our struggles. Let's not pretend. None of us are here because we're perfect. All of us are here because we need help. Let's not think we're okay because we're better than the next person. Let's not think we're doing well because we're better than the person seated next to us. We can't compare ourselves to each other. Now, I don't know how they do it today, but when I was a student at university in some of my courses, our exam results were graded on a curve. Okay, the tests were very, very challenging. And I remember in my physics class, sometimes the highest grades, the best students would maybe score an 80%, and maybe all the way down to, say, a 20%. And it was graded on a curve. And so those who had 80%, they were moved up to 100%. Those who had 60% were moved up to maybe, maybe an 80 or an 85%. It was graded on a curve. The students were, were, were graded based on how well they did in comparison to one another. Well, Jesus told a story, a parable a bit like this. You might know it. Two men go out to pray. A Pharisee looks to heaven, and he thinks, God, he's not like those, that other man, those other men, those, those sinners, those adulterers, those tax collectors, those heathens. He's proud of his fasting. He's proud of his tithing. His performance was greater than those other men, or so he thought. But see, God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't grade us in comparison to one another. It's not your performance on this exam of life versus another's performance. No, the, the other man in the parable understood. The, the sinner, he cries out to God. He realizes he's nothing and he asks God for mercy as a sinner because he realized that in comparison to God, the one who is perfectly holy, he was perfectly unholy, a sinner in need of grace. Ultimately, none of us, none of us measure up to God. That's the comparison. We all fall short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us. We don't trust in our performance, but we need a clean heart. We'll see more about this clean heart in the second point. So second section, number two, not a sign. We don't rely on a sign, but a clean heart. Verses 25 through 29. In this point, we see the Jew trusting in their performance of the law already to bring them right standing with God. Now we see them trusting in a sign. So first the performance, now a sign, the sign of circumcision. Now the sign gave them reason, they thought, to boast in their confidence. They allowed this sign to give them a false security. But the problem was they still broke the law. The sign didn't give them immunity 
as they wish. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. So if you observe the law, okay. But if you break the law, you've become just the same as those who had not the sign, this circumcision. Clearly, if the law didn't save them, then this act or this sign doesn't save them. If you break the law, you're just like anyone else. As John Stott writes, circumcision was a God-given seal and sign of his covenant with his people. But it wasn't a magical ceremony or charm. It didn't provide them with permanent insurance over against the wrath of God. It was no substitute for obedience. It constituted rather a commitment to obedience. Yet the Jews had an almost superstitious confidence in the saving power of their circumcision. In fact, they would say things like, circumcised men would never go to hell and God would deliver all of them up to heaven. Now this rite was a sign. It wasn't unimportant. It was given to Abraham, a public declaration of commitment to God. Romans 4, we'll talk even more about this. Abraham received this sign, a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. Now, Kent Hughes says this was something like a, a wedding ring between God and his people. Circumcision was of great value if you understood its purpose. It's a sign or a symbol of love. A wedding band is a circular symbol of continual faithfulness, but it's not the reality of love itself. Think about it this way. I've been married to Gloria for over 20 years, but I don't wear a wedding ring, at least not for the last dozen years or so. I took it off because it hurt my hand, hurt my fingers due to my nerve disorder. She actually wears my wedding ring uh, under her wedding ring on her left hand. But does the fact that I have no wedding ring on mean my love is any less? A wedding ring on an adulterer's finger is meaningless. Think about this. Which would you prefer, an unfaithful spouse who proudly wears his wedding ring or a spouse who loves with a Christ-like love who wears no wedding ring? Well, the answer is easy. The sign is meaningless if you're not living out the meaning of it. You can have the sign, you can wear the ring, you can be circumcised but not be changed on the inside. You can look the part of a married person but not be faithful to your spouse. You can have the sign of circumcision but not have a clean heart. Circumcision for the non-believing Jew was like a wedding ring on an adulterer's finger. Meaningless, even a mockery, a blaspheming of God's name. What was actually more important than the sign was a clean heart. You see that verses 26 and 27, that those who are not circumcised, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who's not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. The Israelites, they had the law. They had the sign. But if you don't keep the law, then the one who keeps the law, even the Gentiles, the ones without the law and without the sign, won't they be regarded as those who are 
truly and rightfully circumcised? Because it wasn't the physical act that saved, but a different kind of circumcision. It's an extraordinary statement. It would be the Gentile condemning the Jew. Paul says so much in the last verses of this chapter. First telling us who a Jew is not, verse 28, and then who a Jew was, verse 29. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, now this is important, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, what mattered wasn't a physical act, but it was a circumcision of the heart. It was a clean heart cut off from sin. This wasn't new from Paul. This is mentioned in Deuteronomy. We read from Deuteronomy 10 earlier. Also, you see in Deuteronomy chapter 30, circumcision of the heart was a setting apart of Israel to love God with all their heart. That is evident throughout the book of Deuteronomy and throughout the scripture. Paul makes it clear that it's not an uncircumcised Gentile who can keep the law. That's not what he means. But if they do, if they could do it hypothetically, then they would be in the same place as the Jew who tried keeping the law. The point is, none of us can keep the law perfectly. And so having the law or having a sign didn't give you any automatic salvation. Circumcision didn't justify a man. It must be by faith. We could insert any number of words for circumcision and application today. You could say baptism, ministry, church membership, a certain nationality, and on and on. A true Jew wasn't one who had an outward sign, but a clean heart. Well, friend, are you here today trusting in your religious past? Are you taking pride in your religious activities or your culture's traditions? Tim Keller writes, it's possible to trust in Christianity rather than in Christ. You could have an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution by the gospel. You could grasp it with your mind. You can go through the motions with your hands and yet not have a clean heart. It's possible to trust in Christianity or to trust in some religion and not Christ himself, the rites, the rituals, the traditions, the works. Now, some of us need to be saved first by realizing that we're not saved. Let me say that again or say that in a different way. In a sense, you need to get unsaved, at least in your own mind. Now, I know no one can lose their salvation. If you're saved by the blood of Jesus, you're always saved by the blood of Jesus. That's not something we lose. It's a gift freely given to us by God, and he keeps his children to the end. But some of us here perhaps need to realize that they're not saved. That's what I mean by being unsaved. There are some who think they're saved but are not. Now, what do I mean by this statement? Kerala, India. The Bible Belt in the United States. Sub-Saharan Africa, 
parts of East Asia. I could go on and on. Geographic regions of the world, specific countries where people are born. And just because of where they're born or to what family they're born into, call themselves Christians. Many truly believing they're Christ followers because of their background. Their parents are Christians. Their city leaders are Christians. Their president's a Christian. They've done the Christian rituals, baptism, confirmation, gone to the classes, attend the church. How could there be anything else? You know, in fact, those areas are very difficult to minister in. It's difficult to minister to areas where people believe they're saved but have believed wrongly. People who think they're saved but are not saved. And maybe you are a follower of Christ. Most of us here probably are followers of Christ. If this isn't you, maybe you can you think to your family or think to your friends or people back home who this would characterize but maybe here today it is you and you have followed the rituals and you have come from a so-called Christian nation and you believed wrongly about your own salvation Jesus preaches says the same thing in his famous sermon on the mount Matthew chapter 7 Jesus says on that last day what does he say well on that day many will say to me Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name so these are people who are doing ministry these are people who are who are talking about God, publicly, listen to this. In the last day, they'll say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast demons out in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These were those who actually went about doing even the ministry. And Jesus says, I don't know you. Well, friend, are you saved? Are you saved? Don't assume your salvation. Are you saved? The outward sign in our text was only meant to point to an inward reality. Just like baptism is, is for us today. Baptism doesn't save. Those who are going to be baptized next Saturday, they're already saved. They're coming to publicly declare that as a symbol, as a sign, as a declaration of an inward reality, an outward action Showing an inward reality. It's a pointer. A true Jew wasn't a perfect law keeper. It wasn't their performance. It wasn't a fleshly sign. It wasn't verse 29, one who earns praise from other people. But it was a clean heart cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can save. What matters to God is a clean heart. And that can only come through the life and death of Jesus Christ. What matters to God is a clean heart. Heart. Now, this is a big deal. A true Jew wasn't defined by a bloodline. A true Jew wasn't defined by the law. A true Jew wasn't defined by a sign. Now, the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection abolished the old covenant. Christ fulfilled it. And while salvation has always been by faith alone, always, it's now by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the side of the cross. And when we have faith in Christ, God gives us a new heart. This new covenant is a kind of new circumcision. Physical circumcision is a surgery done by a doctor, but circumcision of the heart 
It's a kind of operation we can't do. It's beyond our abilities. It's above our pay grade. It's beyond anyone's strength or gifting. It's what John Stott called a supernatural operation. Circumcision was a cutting off. God says, if you break the covenant with me, you will be cut off forever and ever. You will be cut off completely from me. But no one can keep this covenant. It's pretty clear here in the beginning of Romans. We're in this section called condemnation. And each week we see that. We see that we are condemned before a holy God. None of us can keep this covenant. None of us can live perfectly except one. There's one who did. His name is Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Jesus lived a perfect life. And he went to the cross where he was cut off from God the Father. He was cut off. There was a cutting off on the cross in the death of Christ. As Tim Keller writes, Jesus was truly circumcised and we need Jesus to take our cut-offness. See, friends, only God can do this for us. Only God, through Christ, can do this when we turn to Jesus and only when we turn to Jesus can we be made whole. Not by church attendance, not by baptism, not through our parents' faith. So youth and tweens, if any of you are here in this room You don't have to wait until a certain age to become a Christian. You don't have to wait until you're old enough to have faith. But you do have to come to faith yourself. You personally have to do it. Your parents and your youth leaders can't make you do it. They can't do it for you. Friends, to everyone in this room, you have to personally Repent and turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, the one who was cut off for you to be saved. All of us have to individually repent of our sins and trust Jesus for salvation and only the grace of God will save you. It's been said, God's grace provides salvation we cannot earn, favor we do not deserve, and kindness we cannot repay. And so friend, I urge you to I urge you today to get off the treadmill of religion that you're on. It's going nowhere. For you're not yet saved, get off that treadmill. Jump off that treadmill. Turn to Christ and to the cross to take you across that canyon from death to life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us clean hearts. Oh Lord, for those of us who believe, would we be a repenting people? Would we be one who confesses our sins, living holy lives, walking with God by faith? For those who don't yet believe, would their moment of salvation be right now? Would no one here trust their religious acts? Would no one here trust their heritage? Would no one here assume their salvation? Would no one here trust themselves? But would you... Give them faith to be saved. Would you open their eyes to believe? Would they realize there's nothing they can do to be saved except to trust in the blood of Jesus? That Jesus on that cross took upon the full wrath of God. It took upon the sins of his people. 
Oh, Father, nothing can wash away our sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.